Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and be jumping at Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to another episode of Countrywide. I'm your host, Jessica Schremmer, coming to you from Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country in Victoria. On the program today, we will take a look at food waste and find out why one in every five shopping baskets full of food goes to the bin. About a third uh, is wasted in the home. And for the average home, that equates to around two and a half, three thousand dollars worth of food. And really, most food waste can be avoided. About 70% uh, on, of the average household food waste is avoidable and it's edible. Uh, it's just a matter of managing it better. That story coming up in just a tick. And we will also be talking about milk production in Australia and why prices for dairy products on supermarket shelves are expected to keep going up. But first, it's been an emotional week for the northern rivers of New South Wales, which marked a year since catastrophic floods swept through the region, leaving devastated communities in its wake. While the focus has largely been on Lismore, where the peak of the Wilsons River reached a record 14.4 meters, the agricultural sector from the Clarence to the Tweed was severely impacted. Kim Honan has visited farms, factories and fisheries over the week, for this special feature on the flood recovery of the farming industries. It is no doubt one of the worst years that primary producers in the northern rivers have ever faced. Widespread devastation across all sectors. It's been a long 12 months harvesting what crops they could and planting new ones and rebuilding cattle herds, poultry flocks, bee colonies and fish stocks. One of the industry's hardest hit was dairy. Cows and fodder washed away, crops and pastures ruined... Milk dumped, infrastructure destroyed. At Peter Graham's farm at Codrington, milk production is still down 50%. A bit different to a few others lower downstream that had cattle washed away. We were fortunate that that wasn't the case. But the stress that it's put on our herd, they don't want to milk. They don't want to come back to production. And then going back in calf ready for next year is just taking so long to get the cows back to where they used to be. And then the pastures in the paddock, well that's... That's another, another job where they just aren't responding. Macadamia and avocado growers lost crops and trees from the floods, heavy rain and prolonged wet. Beekeepers had equipment and hives wash away, millions of bees dead and their habitat wiped out. The habitat of the rivers was also severely damaged, decimating fish stocks. Damien Moran from the Clarence River Fishermen's Cooperative says the industry is still on the mend. We're recovering now but did hurt the stocks because of how big the flood was um, and how big our river system is. What went out through the mouth here, yeah, it was extreme. So, you know, it hurt the ocean guys as well, the amount of water and, and different things that were floating out, that, out the river and um, where they work in close and that sort of stuff. So definitely affected slowly on the recover now. So what good could come from such a catastrophe? Despite flood water from the adjacent Wilsons River destroying his microgreens operation at South Gundarimba, he, his wife and eight children being rescued by boat from the roof of their flooded home, Pepe Fassos says the floods had a silver lining. It's a brand new farm. Probably my dream farm now, as opposed to what I had. 
uh, the expansion that we needed. We just took the risk and here we are. We've traded now for nearly five months, so we're kind of happy with that. And if another flood comes, it comes, but I can't see it being as devastating. This is a new modern design, cheaper but more effective and easier to replace. Much more thought gone into it. And whilst Willan Thompson's flooded house near Swan Bay still needs a bit of work, her flower fields are blooming and look better than they did before the floods. Our focus was on the gardens and what our experience was it's been an amazing growing year and as the gardens blossomed, we blossomed again. So that was we did that first and the house came second. And I've had such lovely feedback. We're on the main road between Woodburn and Korokai. So as people drive past, they've watched us re-blooming and I've had lovely messages about, you know, I get vicarious joy when I drive past your, your farm seeing you recover. Farmers like Sue Ellen and Pepe spent weeks and even months living in temporary accommodation before they could move back into their flood-ravaged homes. For the Morrow family, that moment could still be months away. The damage to their home was that severe it needs to be demolished. And whilst they build the removal home they had trucked in, they're living in the pod village in Korokai. We don't know when we move out. It just depends how long it takes for us to get this house up and going. So we were allowed to stay for two years in the pod, which is great. Hopefully it's not a full two years (laughs) before the house is ready. It's been a tough year. It's been a tough 12 months. Yeah, sometimes we've thought about selling up and going. Uh, but at the end of the day, we've had to rebuild. Lyle and Catherine Morrow, whose entire corn crop was destroyed by the floods, their four horses also died in the disaster. They now have a soybean crop in the ground and are hoping for a good harvest and price this year. 2022 was a disaster for the soybean industry in the Northern Rivers. Only 5% of the 12,000 hectares in the ground from the Clarence to the Tweed were harvested. North Coast Oilseed Growers Association President Paul Fleming says it's the worst year for growers in his living memory. Luckily it's been a reasonably good season this year so far. It's probably a bit more on the dry side than anything but the, I think pretty much everyone that, that planned to plant soybeans has planted and, and got a, a pretty good looking crop going forward. We probably do with a little bit more rain now. Some of the crop was actually planted a bit later than, than ideal because of the the dry weather earlier in spring. Tony Carusi at Kilgan lost everything in the floods. His soybean crop, rice, cane, all his cattle, machinery, trucks and his three houses were flooded. Our main focus has been on getting crops in the ground which has been very difficult because of the damage to uh, all of our equipment. We've got um, some nice soybean crops and the rice crop is going fairly well, although we're a little bit of tip burn because it's just been too dry. We've had um, difficulty with uh, sugarcane crops have been uh, decimated uh, by the flood, a lot of debris. We had no uh, one-year-old sets at uh, our planting material. While major agricultural assets like Sunshine Sugar's Three Mills and the Norco Ice Cream Factory suffered extensive damage, tens of millions of dollars worth, they decided to repair and rebuild on the riverbank sites. But for smaller artisan facilities, the risk of sticking around for another flood was too great. In North Lismore, a stone's throw from the Wilsons River, Jenna Piwackett produced plant-based fermented drinks. She still does, but with a flooded factory, had to pivot first moving into a commercial kitchen on a nearby pecan farm and then into a much larger space in Ballina. We did love the space and I often lamented the idea that we had to leave because I loved the community, I loved the fact that we were part of the enrichment of that area 
you know, we, we had a really great uh, presence in the community. We felt really nostalgic about the place and loved it. And lots and lots of times shook the fist to the sky, like, why does it have to flood here? We love it. At Woodland Valley Farm at Fernvale in the Tweed Valley, egg producers and pasta makers Fabian and Jackie Fabro moved their chickens and ducks in plenty of time, but their home and commercial kitchen went under. Our commercial side of things, the commercial kitchen went completely under. A lot of the equipment there went under as well. And as a consequence of that, we've moved the kitchen off the farm now and it's now in Mwillumbar on higher ground, uh, hopefully safer ground for next, the next event. That's for sure. Let's swing back to another positive now. While the Richmond River High campus in Lismore was destroyed by floods with the students relocating to another campus, the animals have returned to the school farm on the site. Agriculture teacher Sally Ford. It's exciting when the kids come back to the farm because that's what they actually say. You know, our school isn't normal. It's not what we used to have. It's good, but it's not what we used to have. But the farm's our normal um, Sydney Royals, our first one, um, with yes, the little Angora goats. That's a new adventure for us. And our Dubbo sheep are about to turn up in about eight days. So that's a big, exciting thing because that's one of the shows that we love going to and competing against. Kim Honan with that report from the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, which marked a year since the catastrophic floods swept through the region. Next up, we are going to take a look at food waste something we all might be guilty of at times. Can you believe one in five shopping baskets in Australia goes straight to the bin? That's according to Food Waste Australia, which is aiming to halve food waste across the country by 2030. But it's not just an issue in Australia. Globally, about one third of our food is currently wasted by consumers. It's hard to believe that by 2050, there will be an extra two billion people on the planet. And with this comes the rising concern how we're actually going to feed everyone. Dr. Stephen Lapridge, creator and CEO of Fight Food Waste Australia, says to prevent future food shortages, we'll need to change the way we buy and consume food. Right now, the expectations are that we've got a 6% by 2050 to feed that population of near 10 billion. So unless we do a number of activities such as reducing food loss and waste and better utilizing everything we grow through you know circular economy principles then we are going to struggle to feed a population of that size what is the average home contributing to waste each year households in australia currently waste 2.5 million tons uh, of food waste out of a total of 7.6 million tons per annum for the country as a whole Uh, So it's a significant proportion, it's about a third uh, is wasted in the home. And for the average home, that equates to around two and a half, three thousand dollars worth of food or one in five shopping baskets. And really most food waste um, can be avoided, about 70% uh, of the average household food waste is avoidable and it's edible. Uh, It's just a matter of managing it better. As you said, you're fighting food waste, but then you're also talking about having enough food to feed the growing population, which I assume they aren't mutually exclusive. So how do you see that coming and working together? Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the the facts and figures uh, people may not be aware of that uh, I mentioned 7.6 million tonnes of food wasted in Australia, but globally... 31% of all food grown in the world is currently lost, which means up to the consumer or wasted by the consumer. Um, So that's a huge volume of food. We can feed the world population now and there would be nowhere in famine if we actually used all the food that we grew 
Um, and if we're not managing food loss and waste into the future, we will really struggle to, uh, to feed that population of 10 billion. Fight Food Waste is working to halve food waste by 2030. How does that look? It's a really ambitious goal. It's a United Nations Sustainable Development Goal and you know, we're developing or we've created the coalition of the willing. We work with 100 different you know, industry partners on any given day um, and we've got multiple options when it comes to you know, committing to halving food waste um, in their businesses and within their sectors. Uh, how are we tracking at the moment? It is hard to tell. The problem, you know, the problem is $36 billion a year. You don't solve that with a $30 million cooperative research centre. That's a bigger problem. But we committed to achieving about a quarter of it, and we're on track for that in terms of the food waste volume reduced. But in doing that, we aim to create $2 billion worth of increased industry profitability at the same time and reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions by 44 million tonnes. Now, that's equivalent of taking about 5 million cars off the road which is significant, it's about 25% of the cars in Australia. So the CRC is on track, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, it's not until we do some independent benchmarking, which we do every couple of years, to see how we're tracking as a country, that we can tell whether you know, we're 10% there or 20% there. But we've also got an increasing population. We've had a pandemic. There's lots of different issues that we're dealing with at the moment. Um, and so time will tell, but we will do that independent uh, benchmarking again uh, next year or uh, in 2024 um, to really see how we're tracking. What impact will the globe heading into recession have and, and how will that filter filter out? Um, it's a really interesting question. I mean, we what we know from the United Kingdom, um, they started on this food waste journey many years before us. Um, they've got a lo- program called Love Food, Hate Waste, that program had a massive impact um, and they reduced food waste in the UK by about 20% very quickly during the global financial crisis, the GFC of 2010. What happens when budgets generally get tight is that people want to make more from their food. The same thing, well, what we saw during the pandemic was really interesting. Uh, initially, there was a lot of food waste created because everyone went out and panic bought. And they did that with perishable food, and not just the non-perishable. So, you know, there was milk and bread and so on that were going to waste. And then the exact opposite happened because no one wanted to go to the supermarket because that was the one place, you know, you're likely to pick up COVID. So everyone started making more from their food and increased, you know, the, the increase in websites that talk about how to make more from your food increased with, you know, 400% increase in hit rates and things like that. And then it started going back to normal again. Um, but people do change their behaviour when food prices increase um, or when they become much more conscious about the problem. And that's what we're trying to create through what will hopefully be a nationwide consumer behaviour change campaign that starts in the coming years. It's really about just making people recognise that food is precious and that we can all do our bit to reduce it. And in, in doing that, we all have our role to play in reducing climate change as well. Most people aren't really aware of the link between food waste and climate change. Globally, food waste causes about 10% of uh, human-induced climate change or greenhouse gas emissions. To put that into perspective, that's not too dissimilar to the same amount of greenhouse gases generated from road transport throughout the world. Dr. Steve Lapich, creator and CEO of Fight Food Waste Australia, speaking there with Dimitria Panagiotarius about the impact of food waste on the environment 
and the push to change consumer behaviors at the AgriFutures Evoke conference in Adelaide. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, if you love your milk, butter and cheese or baking like I do, you've witnessed a jump in prices of those products on supermarket shelves in recent months. And prices are expected to go even higher, with inflation continuing to put pressure on everyone involved in the supply chain. That includes farmers whose costs of producing milk are going up to processors who are battling a shrinking supply of milk across the country. Dairy Australia analyst John Troppett told Fiona Preen, despite the increase in prices, consumer demand for dairy is still strong. People are still putting in their diets, you know, still still buying things like flavoured milk, some of the, the you know, probiotic yogurts and things that you know are probably more discretionary. So people want the product, uh, people globally want the product. As you say, supply's been slow. There's, of course, we've had the shorter term issues around floods, uh, but we've got some of the more medium term challenges around, you know, around staffing, you know, around succession and those pathways into the industry. Do you think prices for dairy will continue to go up for the consumer? I think there's probably a little bit more uh, inflation to come through. If you talk about that 15% uh, increase on the supermarket shelf, that compares with you know a, a 30% increase uh, this season and, and another 5% uh, last season for farmgate prices. So if you think about all the you know all the players in the middle, they've been squeezed um, over the past season, and of course you know farmers are, are paying much more at the farmgate for their purchased inputs as well. And so it sort of stands to reason, especially with the milk pool contracting, that some more of that is going to get passed through to the consumer as, you know, this whole kind of commercial equilibrium works its way out over the next year or two. Have you noticed any drop-off with uh, price increases in terms of consumers? Volumes have dropped slightly, but certainly not, uh, not to any great extent. I think consumers are pulling back a, a little bit, but m more what they're doing is they're making more conscious decisions. So they'll buy you know, block cheese rather than sliced cheese, for example, because you know, when, when, when money's tight, you can cut the cheese yourself uh, sort of thing. You can you can forego a little bit of convenience just to uh, save a few dollars here and there. Um, you know, of course, private label um, at times like this does, does see an increase in share. Um, but again, overall, the situation's been pretty robust for dairy consumption so far. What do you mean private label? So home brand products, uh, you know, as opposed to the Uh, you know, the, the name brands that people are quite familiar with. And they're not always Australian made or, or not always got Australian milk? Not always. Certainly in the case of, of liquid milk, it's you know, virtually all Australian. There is some, uh, some UHT from New Zealand, but the vast majority is, is Australian milk. Yeah, when it comes to branded products, or when, when it comes to private labels, sorry, you, you do have a mix of, uh, of Australian, New Zealand and, and, and other origins as well. What do you take out of the current season and the way forward in terms of... Uh, Uh, looking at where we're going. I think where we're at now, we've got a lot of really robust farm businesses. Like, you know, farmers certainly had the challenges with input costs and, and, and you know, not to mention floods, uh, natural disasters. But, you know, on the whole, farm finances are in pretty good shape. So I think there's a lot of farmers who, you know, have been able to rebuild some of that, some of the financial damage that's been done over the, you know, over the preceding period. So it's a where to from here kind of season, I think. And there's, there's probably a lot of businesses out there where people are, are looking at what, what is the next step? You know, do we stay where we are? Do we look at growth? Of course, you know, the, the global situation is so unpredictable at the moment with uh, what's going on in, in Ukraine and, uh, you know, potentially closer to home and, you know, in, in the Pacific. There's still a lot of things to take pause for. And then, you've, you know, you've got the labour situation as well. So a lot of people probably 
being pretty contemplative this season, I'd say about you know whether they whether they take a risk. Um, you know, in time for action, according to Rabo Bank. Time for action. Well, it's easy. It's easy to say that when you when you um, uh, when you're not making the decision yourself, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's you know, for, for same for me or for, for any sort of service provider. Um, you know, for a person taking on the financial risk themselves, I can understand, especially you know, after the tumultuous time we've had in dairy, um, why they would. Uh, why they would want to run those numbers extra carefully and you know interest rates are going up of course along with all the other things i've mentioned dairy australia analyst john droppet speaking there to fiona breen about dairy prices in the supermarkets and a drop in milk production across australia now in some good news if you've been struggling to get your hands on chips at your local grocer or your favorite restaurant the big chip shortage appears to be over Farmers are harvesting new crops after flooding wiped out a lot of potato crops on the East Coast. After weeks of empty shelves in supermarkets across the country, frozen chips are making their way back. Tasmanian organizer of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, Mike Wickham, says workers at the state's major potato processing companies, Simplet and McCain's, are busy around the clock processing potatoes from the new harvest. Everything's um, underway and back to normal. So they're um, they're pulling spuds out of the ground flat out, both companies. They're um, both back to full operations, which for them is a 24-7 arrangement, 12-hour shifts. So um, they are full on trying to get chips back onto the uh, into the uh, onto the shelves. Have the chips rolled out from the factory yet? Oh yeah, they certainly are. They're uh, they're punching them out pretty rapidly. It must be good news that uh, it's back to normal with the uh, potato harvest. Oh, it is good news for everybody. Good news for um, the workers. Good news for consumers. Everybody, absolutely. How many workers are there at Simplot, and uh, how many at McCain's? Look, we're up around about the two hundred and twenty at uh, Simplot and Alveson. McCain's around about nine, uh, close to a hundred, I would think by now. And they're working weekends as well? They do, mate, seven days a week. So what's it been like the last couple of months? I mean, uh, do they have to have less staff working there? Well, most both factories have a Christmas shutdown period, so they do their, their annual shutdowns for four weeks, five if uh, needed, where they do maintenance and uh, clean up and everything. And that's the only opportunity during the year for people to take annual leave in real terms. So that's a normal practice. Um, and they both commence work again in late January, which is, is pretty normal. And thankfully, there was there was uh, potatoes ready to harvest for them. And it's, it was an unusual uh, period, wasn't it? Have you ever seen anything like it with the lack of spuds? <laughs> Not for a lot of years, that's for sure. It's been probably a pretty unique situation. Uh, with the weather and the, what it done to our harvest, but not only potatoes, it affected vegetables and and not only Tasmania, of course, it was um, around the country. And these uh, chips that are being processed now, are they going around the country uh, as well? Yeah, they'll go out to the all the normal all the normal um, supply, um, contracts. But so they go retail. They'll go to the likes of Woolworths, Coles, the uh, fast food factories, uh, IGA. They'll all get them. They'll all should be starting to get them on the shelves now. Can consumers expect to pay more money for uh, for these spuds this time around for the chips? Uh, not that I've heard. I don't think there's been any increase um, in the costs from from either of those companies. Not that I'm aware of, anyway. And I haven't certainly seen that on the shelves at the moment. And the uh, potatoes that are coming in, uh, are there plenty of them? And uh, what's the quality? The quality is, uh, by all reports, is pretty good. They're um, 
quantity-wise, probably going to be a little bit later in the year to see how that holds up. But potentially, you know, they both could be a bit shorter tonnage to what they normally are, but they'll they'll both go close. So we won't have a shortage of chips for, for the end of the year, Christmas, into the new year. Both have done late planting as well, so they should hold up pretty well. And, uh, of course, um, a lot of restaurants, a lot of fish and chip shops, a lot of places like that missed out. Uh, in the last couple of months, will they get back to normal very quickly? Yeah, I should imagine so, because as I said, they have been pushing them out now since late January, pretty solid. Uh, we should see them all back in, in your favourite restaurant pretty shortly. Mike Wickham, the Tasmanian organiser of the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, talking to Tony Briscoe about the return of frozen chips at a supermarket near you as the new season potato harvest gets into full swing. If you are a fan of smashed avo on toast, get ready to taste some new avocado flavors. Move over, Hess. Get out of here, Shepherd. There are some new kits on the block. Three new avocado varieties have landed on Australian shores in a bid to provide consumers with more options. Lucy Cooper filed this report. Australia's largest grower of Kensington Pride mangoes, Manbaloo, has just signed the rights to three new avocado varieties that have come from New Zealand through its sister business, Mambaloo Fruit Company. Marie Picconi, owner and managing director of Mambaloo Fruit Company, says it's time to provide choice to consumers. It was a niche product in the early 1990s. And then there's been the huge proliferation of Haas all over the world with a few other minor varieties. Um, and... If you look at other industries like the potato industry, tomatoes, apples, uh, there's never been, even mangoes, there's not always a reliance on just one or two varieties, one major dominating variety. And we've identified that there is room for other varieties in the avocado industry. So rather than stick with um, planting even more Hass when there's some situations where you know there's just too many Hass around, um, we wanted to offer customers and consumers um, a new experience. With the material now in Australia, Marie wants to plant out commercially on a pilot basis to assess the three different varieties in Australian conditions. The variety has never been commercially successful in Australia before. These varieties are very exciting because they're all the progeny of Sharwell. And Sharwell is a variety that was um, found and it was found in Australia in about the 60s or 70s. It's an absolutely amazing tasting variety, but it never it never um, expanded hugely commercially because it was it's what we call a B type flower and a B type variety, which means that the flowering and the fruit set is temperature sensitive. These three new varieties. Um, from all of our observation, appear to be A-type flowers, which means they're not temperature sensitive. So they've got all those beautiful charwool eating characteristics, um, and it looks as though they've got you know really good yield characteristics, but they haven't got that setback of being very sensitive to low temperatures, especially um, during flowering. Hass is Australia's most popular avocado variety. So are we really ready to try something new? We do believe that consumers... The research shows that, yeah, sure, lots of people like Hass, but they are also quite, um, they're quite available to taste new flavours in avocados. And these varieties have got a beautiful nutty, buttery flavour. People don't always stick to exactly what they've always had. They look forward to something that's new. I mean, that's, that's a consumer trend. Let's go to the experts in the avocado space. 
The cafe owners who whip up fresh avocado toast for the latte sippers every single day. So our most popular food menu item would be definitely the avocado smash on sourdough. I think they just love it. It's, um, it's a really healthy option and we serve it with just a, re- a wedge of lemon, you know, so it's not overcomplicated with cheeses or anything. It's, it is what it is. It's all about the fruit. There's some days I sell out because um, families are also getting it for their children as a healthy option instead of a ham and cheese toasty. The children are wanting sourdough, you know, the smashed avocado and sourdough. That's Kelly Behrens. She owns the Tobruk kiosk at the Strand in Townsville. Her avo of choice is Hass, thanks to its creaminess and consistency. But she says she isn't stuck in her ways. Well, we're open to try anything. Like, if it's obviously going to be of the same quality and it's in season when the others aren't, we will definitely try it. Yeah. Kelly Barron's Townsville Cafe owner ending that report from Lucy Cooper about the arrival of three new avocado varieties in Australia. And if you like to read more on that story you've just heard, you can head online to abc.net.au slash rural. That's Countrywide for today. I'm your host, Jessica Schremmer. It's been great to have your company. Catch you later.